Good evening. You're all very welcome to the saloon in the Paul's house for this important book launch. This publication is a significant event for the college. Uh, when the teacher, Enda Kenny, launched his Decade of Centenaries in 2012, he asked that events of the decade 1912 to 1922 be studied and be commemorated by communities around the country. Academics and artists and local councils and community groups responded to this with books and with lectures, exhibitions, performances, recitals, uh, all kinds of events. Uh, and I think it is indeed exciting, uh, whatever we might think about it from a historical point of view, I think us ordinary non-historians do find it exciting uh, to be engaging with this transformational period in our history. In Trinity, we knew how important it was to participate in this. Like all Irish institutions, Trinity was profoundly changed by this decade, as were the thousands of students who passed through the college. <coughs> like the country as a whole, it was not always easy. And it wasn't uh, easy in the subsequent decades either for Trinity to confront these challenging events and to, uh, to live with them. For instance, when you look at the three official histories of the college published since 1922, space is given to World War I, indeed all chapters in some cases, but little, little is written about the Rising. Even though Trinity, by virtue of its location here in, in the city centre, uh, was the epicentre of the Rising. And Trinity's library holds very significant uh, 1916 material. So the centenary is an occasion, uh, it's an occasion for the whole country, including Trinity, to look with scholarly detachment and impartiality at what went on. So the college is putting in place, on an ongoing basis, a full programme for the decade of centenaries. And this is the book here, there's probably one for everyone in the audience downstairs. It's a nicely produced uh, a document launched by uh, the Minister for Arts, Heritage and the Gaelic, Heather Humphreys, last week. And the programme includes debates and lectures and public performances and exhibitions. Now, the Moss Irish's book is one of the centrepieces of our commemorative programme, and it will have a lasting effect. The importance of this book for our understanding of the college, for the decade, for the country, is signalled by the presence here this evening of the Chief Justice of Ireland, Susan Denham. We are most honoured that you've come here to launch it. Quite simply, the story of Trinity in this decade has never been told in full. So when Thomas Irish came to me with the proposal for this book, I was most enthusiastic. The story needs to be told, and he's the right person to tell it. A graduate and a gold medalist in history, a PhD student, a postdoctoral research fellow, all of this university. His research area is academia during the early 20th century. His first book, The University at War, 1914 to 1925, Britain, France, and the United States, based on his PhD, was published earlier this year. And now his expertise has produced this fully 
fascinating book dealing with staff, students and alumni, and the picture that emerges is subtle and nuanced. Because of course, there's not just one Trinity response to the events. There was the response of the board, and then the many different and diverse groups and individuals had their own responses uh, as part of the diverse response of the Trinity community. So I'm delighted that we're joined tonight by the representatives from the Students' Union, the HIST, the PHIL and the History Society. Because as well as everything else, Tomás has written a history of student life in this decade. As Tomás uh, gracefully acknowledges, he has benefited greatly from the support of the College for this book, particularly the School of Histories and Humanities. Patrick Gagan acted as a mentor and Jane Maxwell, the principal archivist of the library, served on the advisory committee for the project. The book is published by the Royal Irish Academy uh, with the exceptional production values, of course, that we have come to associate with the, their press. I congratulate Ruth Hegarty and all in the Academy who worked on this book. The book is a valuable and meticulous historical account. It is also which doesn't always follow, a singularly attractive and absorbing read and enhanced by wonderful images. I thank and congratulate Tomás on this book. Because of this book, I'm uh, much wiser now than I was about what happened to this great university during that momentous decade. Some of it does make for difficult reading and some of it is inspiring. All of it is pertinent. To paraphrase Edmund Burke, we study our history so as not to repeat it. And now I have the pleasure of introducing the President of the Royal Irish Academy, who will say a few words to you, Professor Mary Day. Thank you very much, Provost. And I want to take this opportunity to say congratulations. Malls because it is quite a fascinating book and I learned a lot from reading it and I think that those of you who know that particular decade in Ireland history uh, will learn from this book. It genuinely adds to our understanding. Uh, I'm going to be brief. I just really want to say that the Royal Academy is absolutely delighted to be associated with this particular publication and, and we thank Trinity for coming to us and, and, and for the financial support for this publication. There are actually all kinds of links between Trinity in this period and the Academy because in the first months of 1916, the president of the Irish Academy was Mahaffey, and then changed presidency and it became Bernard and, and it handed over to Bernard, two, two men who figure very prominently in, in this particular study. So I found it very useful in terms of getting to put together some of the Nazi of the Royal Irish Academy system during, 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 during 1916. Um, I'm not going to take any more time because there's a great buzz in the room. We had a great session earlier, and I think the person everyone wants to hear now is our next speaker. And to see the book, why don't we launch? officially launched the book. I'll call on the Chief Justice of Ireland, uh, Susan Kemp, please. Thank you very much indeed. Fellows, professors, students, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be here this evening in Fox House. Ireland has a, a program for the decades and commemorations relating to the events that took place between 1912 and 1922. 
Al-Qaeda's World War I with the Easter Rising. These events laid the foundation for a new Ireland and altered radically our place in the world, including our relationship with the United Kingdom. It's an inclusive and comprehensive program commemorating the richness and diversity of our history. All of our, all of our Ireland, as Thomas has said, institutions have established uh, commemoration committees. In the four courts, we have a commemoration committee, and we've been running lectures, and we've had a competition for a secondary school, and we took a historic walk in commemorations, and uh, we had 200 people with us, and we are being inundated with requests for further uh, walks. Um, we've had many lectures, including uh, Childers Ghost by uh, his, his Honor, uh, Mr. Justice Derek Hogan, uh, the Easter Rising, the Trials by His Honor uh, Sean N. Wright, Judge of the Southeastern Court in England, and Barristers of War, a lecture on the Irish Barristers who as soldiers lost their lives in Gallipoli uh, by David Noble. Trinity's program is most impressive and inclusive for the declared, and um, I, I remember uh, a successful Family History Collection Day, World War I, memorabilia, most successful day, and of course, the lecture by Professor Roy Foster. From the 15th of March, 2016, Trinity will take part in the nationwide reading of the proclamation to be followed by a symposium. And this book by Morse Irish, Trinity and War and Revolution, 1912 to 1923 is part of Trinity's program of events. Dr. Irish has, pointed, has painted a thoughtful picture of Trinity in all its diversity. As he says himself, I tried to show how a unique group of entity formed amongst Trinity students, staff, and alumni as the university negotiated the cataclysmic local, national, and international events of the first half of the 20th century. I have found this book absolutely fascinating. It's a book to read from cover to cover, as I did at the weekend, or to dip into. I think very great strength is that Dr. Irish gives us a complete picture of the college, from the provosts to the fortress. Dr. Irish actually begins his, uh, his history by bringing us back before the decades under commemoration where the roots of the subsequent history are to be found in Trinity graduates. Thus, in July 1892, a barrister and graduate of Trinity was elected as the junior member for Parliament for Dublin University, pledging all in his power to uphold the union between Britain and Ireland, Edward Thompson. And he, of course, represented uh, Trinity for 26 years. In the same election, a Catholic Trinity alumnus was working to achieve support for his party. John Redmond was leading the minority faction of the Irish Parliamentary Party with his dream of home rule. And these two men, these two Trinity men, were beginning their political and parliamentary careers. At the same time, 1892, another Trinity graduate, Douglas Hyde, gave a lecture to the National Literary Society on the necessity of de-emphasizing Ireland. And he spoke of the need for political nationalism to be reinforced by cultural nationalism, built on a revival of the Irish language, and of course, the following year, he founded the Gaelic League. These three Trinity graduates, in the best Trinity tradition, representing all aspects of the Chase community, which have a profound effect on Ireland in the decade of commemoration. In fact, in that same year, 1892, Trinity celebrated its tercentenary with vast and lavish celebrations over the week, wonderfully described by Dr. Irish. And, and in fact, Dr. Irish points out that during the tercentenary, Trinity's position as one of the leading lights 
and cultural influence demolished as the events of the decade proceed. The author tells us that in 1913, Trinity flirted with some of the nationalists. The chair of English literature became vacant. Professor Mahaffey and the bulk of the senior fellows began cultivating W.B. Yeats for the position. The Irish Times wrote uh, that the chair of English was one of great reputation and required a great scholar and suggested W.B. Yeats. Yeats was not the only nationalist, however, uh, to put his name forward. Also, Donna, a poet, playwright, and lecturer in UCD, also applied. And his application was supported by six testimonials Dr. Compey, who was president of UCD, uh, Robert Donovan, who was professor of English in UCD, Douglas Hyde, W.B. Yates, Horrick Pierce, and Stephen Grimm, the nationalist MP. Serious consideration was given to W.B. Yates, but neither Yates nor Thomas McConnell were appointed. But as we stand in Times Square on the 15th of March 2016, when Trinity will post uh, the public reading of the proclamation, and when the names of the signatories are read out, the name of Thomas McDonough, who was executed on the 3rd of May 1916, will resonate in the college in the university to which he applied for the chair of the English literature. Trinity, on Monday the 24th, 1916, was like most of Dublin, completely unaware of the policy. College was virtually empty uh, because, of course, many had gone to the First World War, but also those who were here had gone to the head class races. When knowledge of the rising began to trickle in, few and Trinity took steps to protect it. And Dr. Irish tells us the absolutely fascinating story that the chief steward, 70 year old Joseph Marshall, took from his office a large padlock on chain and put it on the front gate. And he armed the porters with Fenian pikes, which he had seized while he was in the Dublin Metropolitan Police in 1867. And he invited soldiers in from the road outside, and many took up the option. And so we had a community Australians and New Zealand Army Corps, we had two or three Canadians, we had nine South Africans, as well as men from various uh, different British regiments. Sentries were placed around the college on the roof and other key points, and the colonial soldiers were placed on the roof of Trinity's West Front, facing the college building. But on that night, the 24th day, there were 44 men in Trinity. One of the most interesting articles in on Trinity and on the rising is the editorial in TCD Miscellany, a student publication of the 19th of June 1916. It was written by TC Kingsmill Moore. He was auditor of the HIST in 1915 and he went on to be judge of the High Court and a most distinguished judge of the Supreme Court from 1931 to 1966. In the editorial on the 19th of June 1916, he wrote, Since our last issue, the rebellion has come and gone, and in that rebellion, College, true to her tradition, has played a worthy, if an unacceptable part. We called on to defend our university against the attack of Irishmen, to be forced to self-defense, to shoot down our own countrymen. These are things which even the knowledge that our duty well done cannot render anything but sad and disgraceful. One of the really great strengths of this publication is its description of student bodies and activities. And the August is pointed out that this is an important part of the book, and in fact, it probably has never been written about before. But I found one of the most interesting uh, descriptions was the taking of exams on Tuesday, the 25th of April, 1916, so in the week of the arrival. Students made their way across Dublin, around South 
for very lean years from college as the new government had neither the money or the inclination to meet Trinity's needs. Indeed, Trinity's parliamentary representatives played a most important part in building a strong relationship between Trinity and the government. Thus, it was of importance not only for Trinity, these representatives from Trinity, they weren't only important for Trinity, but they were very important for the wider Irish community as well. Trinity gave a number of very critical honorary degrees in those years in the early 20s. And in 1926, Trinity awarded an honorary degree to W.D. Cosway. It's fascinating to see, as we are told by Dr. Irish, that Hannah Sheehy's getting held a public meeting on the Powell Street to protest the giving of the honorary degree, asserting that W.D. Cosway had turned his back on everything history had stood for. And of course, we all know in her son, um, she's getting a very important graduate in the his college in later years. However, the celebration uh, wasn't put off in Trinity that night in 1926, and I gather there was a great deal of court consumed in W.D. Night. He, W.D. Cosgrave, returned to Trinity in 1926 to the HIST, where he stated that the HIST had another place in the history of Trinity College and of Ireland. And he returned again in 1928 for the Bicentine celebrations of the birth of Edmund Burke and Oliver Goldsmith. Thus, as Dr. Irish points out, W.T. Cosgrave established himself as a regular and welcome visitor in Trinity, and thus bridges were continuing to be built between Trinity and the government. Dr. Irish has brought us a most scholarly publication on a journey through Trinity in the decade of 1912-1922-23. It's a truly fitting part of Trinity's program in the decade of commemoration and in the wider state celebrations on the decade of commemoration. We are told of the difficulties in that decade, including close by the commemoration in Trinity on World War I. And it's therefore heartwarming that the state's decade of commemorations is inclusive. It's including World War I and the major battles and the loss of life. And so the circle is closing, where both the state and Trinity are openly commemorating the diversity in Ireland, the different traditions, and the events between 1912 and 1922. This is a book worthy of the decade of commemoration. It's also worthy of following the steps of McDowell, Webb, and Bruce. It's most beautifully printed with wonderful illustrations and reproductions of photographs and documents, and my compliments to the RIA for absolutely exquisite publication. In Trinity's over 400 year history, the decade we are commemorating was probably its most critical. Dr. Irish has brought us on a journey from when Trinity was an in institution of the British Empire who bear it is an institution of the Irish state. He is to be congratulated on this magnificent publication, and I have therefore great pleasure in launching Trinity and Warren Revolution 1912-1923. Chief Justice, colleagues, President, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great honour to be present to launch the book in this setting tonight. It's an ex ex exceptionally great honour to be asked to write um, and research this book. Perhaps the greatest honour of Trinity graduate is exploring into universities. Um, I was thinking about how I'd approach um, speaking tonight, and I was reminded, as I no longer um, work here or live in Dublin, walking through the front gate um, today, I was reminded of what I heard Paul speak about on a number of different occasions, about his first day in Trinity, walking through the front gate, and describing the centre wall and wonder suggested by the buildings and um, going from darkness to light. And it reminded me of my first day in Trinity, um, when I was struck by the fact that I was in this very historic setting, 
knew very little of the history of the institution. But a funny thing happened on the first uh, Monday of Freshers Week in 2002. One of the very first friends I made, one of the very first things he told me was that his great-grandfather had locked the gates in Easter Week at Trinity College Dublin <laughs> to stop the rush from getting in. So that made me curious. A few weeks later, another um, fellow course member on my history degree told me that his great-grandfather had been on the other side um, during Easter Week. And we tried to work out um, what the potential relationship might have been. But throughout, as I developed my, my interest in the history of the institution, I was aware that in a very historic institution, one where history is omnipresent in many respects, this critical decade perhaps not as well known as others. So I hope that this book has addressed um, something that we didn't know at the university of how trans um, managed to circumnavigate a very difficult period in its own history, which I think directly impacts on the development of the modern university and informs a lot of what the modern university currently stands for. I was very fortunate in the writing of this book that I was able to lean on the fantastic histories that have been written before the, of the institution by people like Robbie McDowell, and David Webb, John Luce, and also Kenneth Bailey. And in particular, I was exceptionally fortunate that I was able to talk to Robbie McDowell as an undergraduate and get his reminiscences of the period. And in that, also that act really stirred my curiosity about the history of the institution. I was also very fortunate that I was able to um, get to know the Luce family, although I didn't discuss the project with John Luce, but I spoke to um, his, his wife, Ben Lindell, and various other family members to get a real flavour of what the institution was like in the period which he wrote about. And I've been informed, while David Webb was dead before my time at Trinity, I've been informed by a friend of his, uh, Roy Foster, that he, while he would not necessarily been enthusiastic about the book, because that wasn't his way, he would have given it what Foster called an affirmative grunt. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that'll have to do. <laughs> um, as the Chief Justice and, and Promise have pointed out, there are lots of very interesting individual stories in the book. Eileen Corrigan and her group of um, female undergraduates coming on the Tuesday of Easter week to sit their exams is one. The story of Walton and Beckett um, starting their degrees in the same period just as the Civil War was coming to an end, and then being Trinity's first two Nobel Prize winners, of course, the third has, has emerged since the book was published. Stories of people like Thomas Mahaffey, who was famous, I'd like to say, in sort of modern parlance for being famous. And um, he liked to speak of his relationship and connection to people like the Kaiser, to people like King George V, and um, to the king, um, kings and queens of various different European nations. But also he was an accepted decorated scholar internationally. To people, and also narratives about people like someone who I wasn't familiar with before, um, by the name of E.P. Culverwell, um, a professor of education who made a number of very interesting and principled interventions around the time of the Holman crisis in and also to people like Eamon de Valera, who we mentioned in the speeches before preceding. So while on the one hand the book is a, a set of interesting narratives, personal experiences, it, I, I'd like to think it's more than this, and I struggled for a long time with how to sort of conceptualise how, how all this fitted together. I was struck by things like, why when I read letters in the First World War, did Trinity students and alumni borrow horses and ride for miles to the front line because they heard there was another Trinity alumnus or 
my world alumni dinners held in places like Baghdad, Jerusalem, and Alexandria at the end of the First World War. And the, perhaps the alumni reached the university would be delighted to get easily, never mind the end of the World War. <laughs> And why in 1916, when there was so um, much turmoil, so many questions what was happening, what it meant for the city, um, what structure was taking place, why did Trinity students, staff, and alumni gravitate towards one another, even when they didn't necessarily know one another? What were these bonds tied to together? How did people understand these sort of shared connections? And it drew me to this idea of the wider Trinity community, which I think is an important one, and I think. Um, is a durable one. And these, it shows that these relationships, and these connections, these shared associations were important to people at the time. What I discovered in, in researching and writing the book was that in fact this very same sense of community, of shared connections to people, um, of shared bonds and associations, is very much present um, today. It very much helped me and informed how I researched and wrote the book. When I approached complete strangers who I'd never met before, who had no connection to me, heard what the project I was involved in was, they lent their time and their expertise freely and very kindly and generously. Um, and I realised the sense of community was something that has, um, um, throughout, the throughout the century that uh, came after the period in question, is still as strong as it was then. And it's a particular thrill to see so many faces of people who helped me in the research of the book present tonight, such as the Woods, um, Anne Robert Woods, I saw Tom Turpin, um, Peter Boyle, I'm going, to, I'm going to forget other names, but it's, it's a real thrill to see those people here tonight. <coughs> the list of acknowledgements for the book is very long, and I couldn't possibly name everybody because I'm just forget somebody. But in particular, I really want to thank the Royal Irish Academy and the team there, um, Ruth Hegarty, Nina King, and Fidelman Slattery, and Jeff Wilson for their support throughout the project and in the production of the book in making such a, visu a visually appealing piece of work, which is what everybody compliments me on when they first see it, and of course I can't take any credit for it. So I'd like to say a big thank you to the Royal Irish Academy for that. I want to also say, say a big thank you to Jane Maxwell um, in the Department of Manuscripts in Trinity for her support along the way throughout the project for making archives accessible even when they were catalogued, cataloging them for me very quickly so I can look at them and reference them in full. Um, I want to thank Patrick Gagan in particular for supporting the project throughout its, um, its genesis and its development, for being as the PI on the project, for organising the events tonight as well. A big thank you to Patrick Gagan. I want to thank the Provost for sponsoring the project throughout its, um, its development as well, for encouraging um, critical interrogation of the history of the institution. Thank you, Paulus. 